So if you take your Bibles and open them to Malachi chapter 3, and the title of today's message is An Epitaph to Remember. If you'd stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word, I'll begin with verse 13 and read through verse 18, Malachi chapter 3. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Then those who feared the Lord and spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. You may be seated. Just this week, I actually received a text with a picture of an epitaph. It read as follows. Paul never met a stranger. Those who knew him were impacted by his joyful warmth, benevolent heart, and godly character. Certainly an epitaph that many of us would desire to have. I truly appreciated that text, that's the form that it came to me, for its effect. Unfortunately, far too often, many of us are not concerned with the legacy that we will leave. One friend of mine is such a lover of past legacies that you'll often find him visiting historical grave sites. It's fascinating to think of the ages before and how they've affected the current times and perhaps the future to come. What about our legacy, though? What are we leaving behind when our time is up? Statistics show that on average, 78 years is all we have to leave one. Today is Sunday, August 8th, 2021. On this day, over 7,000 people in this country will die. In this time that we are together even here this morning, 
over 300 people will go to meet their maker. None of us know when that day is coming for each of us. With that said, if this was your last year, or perhaps even your last day, what will be said of you? In our passage today, we'll see a timeless truth. That God opposes the proud, yet he remembers and rewards the humble. In light of that theme, I want us to look at three declarations from this text in Malachi. Declarations that I pray will enable us to live a life of humility and service unto our Lord. Declarations that will equip us to answer the question, how might we live a life to be remembered? Unless the Lord returns, each of us will have an epitaph written for us sooner than later. Once again, what will be said of you? Our first declaration, number one, is to believe God. And this is found in verses 13 through 15. In verse 13, we can see that Israel primarily manifested unbelief. That unbelief came in the form of a hardened and rigid and prideful demeanor. You can see that the verse states, Their words were arrogant against the Lord. This is the same type of verbiage that was used of Pharaoh. In Exodus chapter 7 verse 13. As it spoke about how he hardened his heart. Against the Lord. And now as for the Israelites of Malachi's day. They chose to presume upon Yahweh. To make matters worse, and we've seen this time and time again, nothing new, they once again question the Lord. Look at the end of verse 13. It reads, what have we spoken against you? Now, as we've worked our way through this book, now we've gone through a total of six accusations against these people, their hypocrisy is a striking reminder of the inherent nature of man. It's one thing to believe God when the waters are parted and divine deliverance has taken place. It's another to believe Him in the midst of a desolate wilderness. As for Israel, a hundred years had passed since their return to the promised land. And this context, in essence, had become their wilderness of unbelief. In verse 14, 
that cast iron prideful nature continues to manifest itself in the form of selfishness and false humility. You can see the verse, the people go as far as saying, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge? Like a treasured antique, blemished by stains, they claim it's worthless to follow the Lord. What's more, it's no advantage. Last week, we examined the appreciation of God's provision. In that appreciation of his provision, we saw Israel's neglect of that provision and their robbing from the Lord. We made the argument that based upon God's sovereign love, there is nothing in any human being that could ever seize something as if it's theirs to take. A complete utter and disregard for God's provision. And yet here, their whole motivation behind any desire to serve the Lord was one of self-gratification. There's indeed a humility that's counterfeit. Professing itself to be meek and lowly. All the while cloaked in the hypocrisy of selfish ambition. The prophet Isaiah referred to it as professing with their lips allegiance, but yet their heart was far from him. Unfortunately, this was the typical pattern of Israel, as opposed to what true belief in God actually produces. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we ask the question, what does an understanding of God's sovereign love produce? We looked at an attitude of humility, an appreciation of grace, and an attitude of worship. Nevertheless, in the face of such divine truth, Much of Israel responded with prideful unbelief. You'll see in verse 15 that they take it even a step further and ascribe wickedness and apathy to the Lord. So much so that they call the arrogant blessed and the wicked, the doers of wickedness, being built up. Not to mention, they say that those that test the Lord sinfully receive impunity rather than God's righteous judgment. You could go as far as framing their words as such. This is Israel and their prideful, pompous arrogance speaking. We call these overbearing, prideful people as blessed beyond measure. Not only are these deliberate, evil people exalted, they violate God's law and still escape. 
And I don't know about you, but is that not the perfect example of the pot calling the kettle black? Last week, we discussed the importance of honesty and our appreciation of our relationship with the Lord. Honesty is key for us. We see it throughout many of the prayers of the scriptures where men and women lay their heart out before the Lord in honesty and sometimes confessing and admitting their sinful motives. In Psalm 73, verse 3, the psalmist actually spoke with honesty while conveying his envy of the arrogant. However, true belief in God with honesty on display does not remain in contradiction. At the end of that psalm in verses 27 and 28, that honesty did not remain in sinful disobedience, but led to worship of the Lord. The psalmist said, For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I might tell of all your works. True belief in God is not impervious to doubt, vexation, or despair. And although true belief in God will inevitably find a refuge in the comfort of his care. Much of what we've seen in our first declaration has been an example of how not to be remembered. As for us, biblical history certainly serves as a warning, as a guard, as a protection for us. A warning that equips us to actually live a life worthy of being remembered, be that as it may. How do we do this? Everything begins with believe God. Jesus said in John chapter 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. To my brothers and sisters in Christ, dear beloved saints, your epitaph has already been confirmed. You Believe God. We rejoice together in that marvelous truth that we do not deserve. Although, as we all wrestle with the flesh, allow me to challenge you in one area of sanctification, not salvation which is set in stone. More on that later. As for Israel, they asserted their sinful desire for profit in serving God. Would we be willing to acknowledge our own 
sinful desires at times to gain an advantage in how we serve the Lord. For example, what is our motivation in service to this incredible body of saints in Miriam Christian Chapel? Is it solely focused upon what I want? Or is it more primarily focused upon what I can give? True belief in God will inevitably lead to an attitude of humility. An attitude that seeks to count our brothers and sisters in Christ within this local body and within the universal body of Christ as more significant than ourselves. An attitude that is willing to die to self, to make ourselves as nothing, just as our Lord and Savior did for us. And by the same token, if everything begins with believe God, everything begins with grace. Beware of a vending machine approach to life. Are we depositing funds in an expectation of what we want in return? All the while kicking the machine of life, hoping to knock it loose? A life worthy of being remembered will humbly assert, not my will be done, yours be done, Lord. An epitaph to remember will be one that simply reflects the blessed privilege of being called to believe and proclaim his grace to the masses. That's worthy of a hallelujah by us all. The second declaration is to fear God. This is found in verse 16. You'll notice as you look at that verse that fear the Lord is used twice within this verse. In order for us to fully unpack this declaration, we need to define this term. Often it's misconstrued, misapplied, misunderstood. What does the fear of the Lord mean? First off, and this is one aspect that is often overlooked in defining it. The fear of the Lord certainly carries a real, healthy fear. For example, perhaps the best illustration of this comes from the words of the crowds. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 26 and 27. I want you to listen for their real fear and reverence as Moses describes his experience that was pre pre-context at Mount Sinai the crowd said to Moses for who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived 
go near and hear all that the Lord our God says. Then speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you. And we will hear and do it. There is certainly throughout the scriptures a healthy, true fear when it comes to the fear of the Lord. Additionally, in verse 16 of our passage, we also find more clarity in the correlating phrase, synonymous as it is. You'll see there, those who feared the Lord esteemed his name. In contrast to the despisers of his name, in chapter 1, verse 6, these are men who hold the Lord in high regard and honor. Is that you? God is calling us in that manner. Furthermore, the fear of the Lord inevitably produces a hatred of sin and the corresponding obedience. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, and Deuteronomy 6, 24 and 25 provide insight here. I'll read these briefly to you. You can make note and reference it later. Proverbs 8, 13 reads, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Deuteronomy 6, 24 and 25 says, So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. So, let's bring this together. Provide a definition for the fear of the Lord. We might say, the fear of the Lord is a healthy fear and profound reverence for God, which produces a hatred of sin, and faithful obedience. Now, what about the Lord's response to those who fear him? I love this. Look at the middle of verse 16. The verse says, this phrase here, the Lord paid attention and heard them. Now, we've referenced this before, but this is the Hebrew word that conveys so much more in hearing than what we commonly might think of on this word. The Lord is doing so much more than just attentively listening to them, but he is actually acting on behalf of those who fear him and esteem his name. That word in the Hebrew, once again, it conveys a sense of action on top of hearing. As arrogant, hypocritical pleas fall upon deaf ears, we could say that the Lord heralds his attention and provision for those who esteem and fear his name. 
He acts on your behalf. Look again as the verse goes on to substantiate this provision. In verse 16 it reads, A book of remembrance was written before him. Now, as much as I would love to, because I do love prophecy, but for the sake of time, we won't unlock all that this pertains to. But make a note, you can reference it later. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, provides clarification and confirms this message of edification for Israel specifically, pertaining to this book of remembrance and the time context that it's referring to. This is a time when they will be remembered and resurrected in an age to come. So, in a message filled with accusations, the Lord begins to once again showcase his desire to encourage the faithful remnant of Israel. And we're going to see as we strive to the end of this book that as we've gone through so much reprimand and accusations, that now we will see continual encouragement for the faithful. In view of this, though, we still need to address our question concerning this second declaration, fear God. What is that question? How might we live a life to remember? As we rightly interpret this word, we look and see and pull out of the text what transpired and what will transpire for Israel. Why is that important for us? Let me begin with the greatest encouragement any believer will ever know. If you are in Christ, in the same way that there was a book of remembrance for Israel, you have been remembered before time began. And one day, you'll see that come to fruition. Listen to the glorious words of Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 through 27. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it and nothing unclean. And no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Hallelujah. If there is anyone here today who has or perhaps still struggles with assurance of your salvation, dear friend, I want you to know 
that if you have believed God and you fear God, he has remembered you. He has saved you. There is an intimate, individualized, preeminent epitaph that is enshrined in the Lamb's book of life, sealed by the Holy Spirit, written with the blood of our Savior for What's more, because of this great assurance, would we, out of profound reverence in all, hate sin more and worship him with a healthy fear? Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 28 and 29 provides us with tremendous application for this declaration. The word of God says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Like the house that was built upon sand. So is the state, unfortunately, of many immature believers. Aware of the storms to come aware of the lack of foundation. And yet they take for granted a healthy respect for danger. To quote John Owen again, the great Puritan, he said, let us be found killing sin or it will be killing us. What is it today that God is calling you by his grace to kill when it comes to sin? What is it today that God is calling of you when it comes to taking off the old man and putting on the new? There's certainly no condemnation to those that are in Christ, washed in his precious blood. Your epitaph is complete in its final destination. However, there's still work to be done and faithful rewards to be added before you come to the judgment seat of Christ. And beloved, that is a precious place to be for believers 
not the great white throne judgment, which we will look at here shortly. Let it be said of us, when we're gone, that was a man, that was a woman who believed God and feared him. Our third and final declaration is to serve God, found in verses 17 and 18. In these final two verses, you'll notice the Lord's righteous personal possession are those who serve him. You see that at the end of both of those verses. Belief in God and fear in God will ultimately and inevitably produce service unto the Lord. With that said, before we look at this service, I want us to examine a monumental motivation within especially verse 17 for Israel's service. In verse 17, several catalysts are on display like no other in reference to the day that we mentioned from Daniel chapter 12 and that final reward for Old Testament saints. The Lord emphatically proclaims his faithfulness and his love in connecting they will be mine in my own possession. In chapter 1, we saw that he authenticated his divine prerogative to choose them. Here, once again, he validates his divine privilege to preserve them. As the prophet Jeremiah foretold, one day he would write his law, the Lord, upon their hearts and he would remember their sin no more. How might we illustrate this? Sometimes scripture is wonderful in the fact that it illustrates it for us. Verse 17 does that work. He says, I will spare them as a man spares his own son. A couple things to grasp here. This word spare demonstrates compassion. Demonstrates leniency. And certainly implies guilt. The son, in this case Israel was obviously guilty. Who amongst us is not guilty before a holy God? In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is the same word that is used for mercy. In our examination of Jacob, we saw that there was nothing in his life worthy of mercy. Yet the Lord chose him and his people. Now, we also see, and if I were to use mercy as a verb, 
he will mercy the righteous who serve him. This is grace. This is sovereign love that first empowers one to believe God, to fear him, and inevitably to serve him. As for Israel, there's a day coming where this will come to ultimate fulfillment. However, even for the faithful remnant of their day, God desired to encourage and preserve them. He empowered them to abide in the promise such as Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 12 which reads for the faithful remnant of Israel during that time. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God to walk in all his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And then to close in verse 18, their encouragement for service continues and a motivation and the knowledge that the Lord would most certainly indeed distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. Remember the questioning and the arrogance and the pride that began this passage as if the Lord was apathetic to those who are wicked. God is not mocked, my friends, and never will be. He will distinguish between the covenant keepers and the covenant breakers. He will distinguish between the guiltless and the vile. He will distinguish between those who serve him and those who don't. This is how the righteous of Israel will be remembered for eternity. What about us, though? How might we live a life to remember? As believers, it's that mercy of God that fuels us. It's because of his initiating grace that we were ever even able to know him and then in turn to follow and serve him. In the same way that Israel was his chosen possession, if you are in Christ, God has chosen to set his love upon you. Like a child longing for the affection of his father, so is the true believer devoted to his heavenly father as he desires to please him and to serve him. In light of this heavenly fuel, with Titus chapter 2, verse 14, be our banner this morning as we ask, Lord, 
We believe you. We fear you. We want to serve you. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that's you. You are his possession. And he calls you, as the verse says, to be zealous for good works. Service unto the king. What is God calling you this morning to be zealous for in service unto him? What will your epitaph say and reflect as a servant of the king? To close, my heart cannot help but think of perhaps there being some in this room who have never chosen to receive those declarations to believe God to fear him and to serve him Malachi stated that a day is coming when a distinction will be made between the righteous and the wicked of Israel if Anyone here where this is the case, the Apostle John spoke of a final distinction for us all, not just Israel, between the righteous and the wicked in the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20, and you do not want to face that. John said, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. Then death, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. How does one know if his name is written in the Lamb's book of life? The answer is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Fear him. Serve him as a new creation. An epitaph without Christ will be forgotten and will be incinerated in an eternal lake of fire. 
If there is someone even here today under the conviction and weight of that truth, I urge you, I call you, I beg you, turn from your sin and trust in Christ before it's too late. 300 people have passed from this life into the next in the time that we've been together here this morning. Tomorrow is not promised. Bow with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, as believers in the precious born-again salvation experience that you have given to us, we rejoice in the God of our salvation. We thank you, Lord, that you chose us before time began, that you chose us to set your love upon us, to draw us by your grace. We wanted nothing apart from your grace, but in your mercy. You called us to believe and in turn gifted us with faith. Lord, I pray now that if it be your will, you would impart your precious grace, repentance, and faith upon any individual sitting within this room under the sound of this message in recordings to follow in the future that they might turn and be remembered in the Lamb's book of life with an epitaph to remember. In the precious, blessed, mighty name of our Savior we pray.